Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. Got some sad news right off the bat, everyone. Rivka will not be here this week. Unfortunately, she has come down with COVID, so she's not going to be here just for this intro part. Uh, We recorded the interview ahead of time, so you'll hear her in a little bit, but she's doing all right. She's resting. So even though this first bit, I'm sure, won't be nearly as interesting without her here, uh, I told her to take the week off. I can handle it, and you know she'll be back next week. I also need to go ahead and apologize to folks because... We said at the end of last week that we were going to be watching You've Got Mail today. Well, we had some audio issues with the episode, so unfortunately we had to scrap it. Uh, Don't worry, we will get to that movie at some point because it is, oof, it is a good one. But we put out a correction, but I apologize if anybody watched You've Got Mail in preparation for this episode, only to have the rug pulled out from under their feet. But, you know, we're learning, we're growing, we're going to make mistakes, we're all human, that's part of life, so... Onward. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time talking by myself for this first part because no one no one needs that. Um, but something I did want to mention quickly, uh, because we touch on it in this interview you're about to hear um, about the film Triangle of Sadness. We talked a little bit about what we are taught in the American education system about capitalism, communism, the history of both and everything in between. Now, it's important to contextualize this, that the American capitalist bourgeoisie class and the American state, the American government, has almost always pushed anti-communist propaganda since pretty much the late 19th century. And then the Red Scare in the late 40s and early 50s and then the Cold War really took things to the next level in terms of purposely obscuring those histories, especially the way that we are taught about it in the modern U.S. educational system. You know, something that our previous guest, Chris Myers, from the Children of Men episode, if you haven't listened to that, check it out. He's brilliant. But something that he had said to us when we participated in his reading group was, I want you all to think about what you were taught about Karl Marx, about communism, about the Soviet Union. I want you to actually try to recollect what you learned at a young age in the U.S. education system. And and I thought back to my own education, you know, probably, I don't know, middle school, high school, and thinking, yeah, okay, so I remember being taught Karl Marx was a guy who wrote the Communist Manifesto, and then the Russian Revolution happened, and Vladimir Lenin was maybe a good guy, but then he died, and so Stalin took over, and he was bad. But communism doesn't work. Good in theory, bad in practice. So, I mean, just to start, that is a massive oversimplification that doesn't take into account so much additional historical context and is largely inaccurate. But that was pretty much all I retained. That was all I had really been given by the American education system. Also, just a huge L for Friedrich Engels, who I'm pretty sure is not taught in the American education system as the other co-author of the Communist Manifesto. But now that I have much more historical knowledge, I'm able to critically think about what I was taught and 
what those important omissions were. I mean, most notably that we were taught about the Communist Manifesto, but we were not taught about Das Kapital, which is, as pretty much any Marxist would assert, is Karl Marx's most important work. That is his critique of capitalism. That's the one that has all of the theory, all of the economics, all of the all of the sociology that is really at the heart of any proper Marxist critique. So that's one. And another important one is that we are not taught about how the class struggles in America, in the United States, are intrinsically tied to capitalism. You know, we learn about the Industrial Revolution, the robber barons, the the early 20th century labor movement, the stock market crash of 29, the Great Depression, the New Deal. We learn about all that stuff, but we're not at all taught about how those events, those class struggles were a byproduct of the capitalist economic organization that governs almost every aspect of our society. And that's on purpose. Because if you don't teach people about the system that they live in, then you don't realize its influence on society and your entire life. So what we got was, you know, Karl Marx, bad. Socialism, communism, definitely bad. Capitalism, we just don't talk about it. So just wanted to put that out there, some food for thought as we head into this really, really amazing conversation we had about such a great film, Triangle of Sadness. But first... I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by The Lever, a reader-supported investigative news outlet which reports on the people and corporations manipulating the levers of power in our society. You can go to levernews.com to find all of their original reporting. In fact, if you've been following the news really quickly uh, about the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, A week and a half ago, the lever broke the story about how the railroad lobby and the chemical lobby had gotten all of these safety rules watered down and repealed, essentially, Um, and why this train that was carrying this extremely toxic chemical wasn't being regulated as it should have been. And the lever's reporting has been driving national conversation. It's easily the biggest week this publication has had in terms of seeing the impact that accountability journalism, real investigative journalism can have in pointing out how all of this corporate money corrupts our society, how it makes things less safe for us, how it it destroys communities. So I really recommend if you haven't, go over to levernews.com, check out their reporting, become a subscriber. They're really doing some of the best journalism today. And they produce this show. So I'm really grateful that we get to be a part of the Levers podcast network. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people. So we really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Triangle of Sadness with Carla Marie Davis and Rivka. So thank God you won't have to listen to just me for the rest of this episode. 
So today we are joined by Carla Marie Davis. Carla Marie Davis is a political content creator and a freelance fashion stylist from Brooklyn, New York. She graduated with a BFA in fashion design from FIT and worked in women's ready-to-wear design before going on to work in the political space at a consulting firm with clients in local and state politics, a career pivot driven by a deepening commitment to social justice. Carla creates digestible short-form videos specifically focused on New York City politics in an effort to erode the gap between New Yorkers and their local government. She also co-hosts the Sip and Politic podcast, which explores political topics from a leftist intersectional perspective and works as a freelance editorial and personal fashion stylist. So welcome, Carla. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Carla, we're so thrilled for you to be here. Um, Rivka and I were introduced to your work on TikTok, which is, as, as Rivka mentioned, you do... Uh, I guess I would call it maybe like aggregate journalism, where you are taking, you know, very important local stories and forming them into very easy to understand, digestible uh, TikTok videos that really break down local politics here in New York. Um, highly recommend everyone check them out. I recently moved to New York uh, a little over a year ago. So your videos have actually helped me learn a ton about oh. uh, New York City politics. And I'm a Brooklyn native, but your videos still help me learn hey. a ton about Brooklyn politics. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. And I am from New Jersey, so I'm not like... <laughs> okay, so you're not too far off of a transplant. No, no, no. I'm not like a total transplant. Right, right. For the record. <laughs> so, Carla, the movie you chose for us to watch is Triangle of Sadness, which, yes. which is one of my favorite movies from this last year. Uh Written and directed by Ruben Ostland, starring Harris Dickinson, Charlby Dean, Vicky Berlin, Dolly De Leon, Zlatko Burek, and Woody Harrelson. This movie won the Palme d'Or at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it was released on September 29th, 2022 in the U.S., had a budget of $15.6 million, and has made so far $21.8 million worldwide. So successful uh, by by capitalist standards a successful <laughs> film this movie is about a celebrity model couple carl and yaya who are invited on a luxury cruise for the uber rich helmed by an unhinged boat captain and what first appeared instagrammable ends catastrophically leaving the survivors stranded on a desert island and fighting for survival and for some context this film came out last year in september this was eight months after Russia invaded Ukraine. Global wealth inequality is the worst it's been in the entire last century. Leftist leaders are elected in Chile, Colombia, and Brazil. And at the same time, there's a rise in fascist politicians running for elected office in France, the United States, and Italy. And of course, Elon Musk purchases Twitter. So that's where we are when this film comes out. What a year. I love that global context. So Carla... Why did you choose this movie for us to watch? Yeah, so similar to you, Frank, this was one of my favorite movies that I watched last year. And I don't know, Rivka, Frank, if you guys got into White Lotus at all, but mm -hmm. I was oh, very yeah. much obsessed. My whole TikTok for you page was like fully White Lotus theories for the few weeks that it was on. <laughs> um, but so there's definitely similarities between the show and Triangle of Sadness, obviously in terms of setting, watching this on the heels of, you know, White Lotus was a nice extension of the vacation escapism, but also in terms of theme, right? Like the, it, they're both kind of this satirical look at wealth and the elite and both kind of condemn capitalism and power structures. And, you know, Triangle of Sadness is kind of on the nose in some ways. So if subtlety is your thing, you might not find it as compelling, but I did find it to be 
you know, funny and charming and, you know, very thoughtfully done in many ways. Although I do have some sort of shortcomings that I think the film has that we can maybe dive into a little later, but excited for the discussion. No, we'll definitely get into that. And I also am a bit, we're both big White Lotus fans, but it was funny. I watched this with my mom the first time and midway through, she's like, you know, I like White Lotus better. And we got in a huge fight and I couldn't watch it any other way than comparing it to White Lotus. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up subtlety because I feel like that's the biggest thing that divides a lot of viewers. And I just loved how, I guess it's on the nose, but I just loved how in your face this satire was because I just think, and that was my biggest problem, I think, watching White Lotus, even though I love White Lotus, deeply enjoy it. I feel like it's so easy to detach from and watch as like a fun vacation show because it is subtle. Although I think it doesn't tackle a lot of the issues because I think capitalism so in your face And then I just appreciated how in your face this is and how hard we have to work to settle the capitalism around us, if you will. So I just felt like this was such a big picture. But my mom liked White Lotus better. Well, Amy can come on the podcast and defend her opinion if she wants. No, now she's given up. She's like, it's fine. I like that one, too. I'm like, okay, White Lotus fine. is more lighthearted. So I get it, you know? For sure. Yeah. For sure. I had to rewatch it. And I did also, as we dig deep into it, have some some more criticism on second watch. Rivka, was, were we discussing it and you you called Triangle of Sadness White Lotus with teeth? I mean, I'd like to say it was me. Like, I agree. It was definitely you. Um, that is what this felt like to me. And I, I agree with the on the nose-ness, but I also agree with Rivka in that like, there's like a brutal visceralness, mm-hmm. visceralness. There's a yeah, brutal visceralness about this film that really forces you to look at all of these class disparities, all of these wealth disparities. Um, and just like the conditions that these people are living through, like the storm and the Island where it's just like, it's not pulling any punches and its message is for the most part. And we'll, again, we'll get into shortcomings, but the, for the most part, it is like gut punchingly clear. Like this is like Ostland's stance on class and wealth is I think pretty apparent. And that he's like, you know, disparaging these uber wealthy people and lifting up, uh, you know, the working class with lifting up labor. So I, I really appreciated how straightforward it was. Cause I feel like, Sometimes subtlety can get lost on some viewers. Sometimes, you know, like people can take away a different message, the incorrect message, something that the director didn't necessarily intend. So I did. I I loved how in your face this movie was. Carla, I'm so curious, starting from the top, since you are in the fashion industry and so much of this film is about that beauty economy and starts there. And some of my favorite moments are in that are in just like that prelogue with Carl and his um go see, I guess. Uh, What were your thoughts of sort of the fashion world as a way into this world of capitalism? I think it was the perfect place to start the movie. And obviously fashion kind of sits or the fashion industry kind of sits at the nexus of, you know, capitalism and white supremacy. And I think it did a really good job at critiquing it. It was really a kind of like the scathing indictment of the fashion industry that I think is justified, right? And so I think it touches on, you see sort of like the the hierarchies and and power dynamics that exist in the in the fashion industry when we're at the fashion show and they make these people get up and move from the front row and like the politics of front row seating at fashion shows is something serious and so you know people with more social capital are you know so that that seating is reserved for them also it talks kind of about 
the greenwashing that's very ubiquitous in the fashion industry when Yaya, I think it's Yaya that was walking in the show and that you see the words, like the, you know, words alluding to the, to the climate crisis flash on the screen. But obviously we know that the fashion industry is, you know, the biggest polluter on top of the, you know, widespread exploitation of garment workers. And so, you know, that was a little nod to greenwashing there. And also another thing that I think that people don't realize is that I think the movie did a good job at kind of buffing away the glamorousness of modeling, because though there are absolutely models who are part of the elite, they're making millions of dollars. They are anomalies, really, in some ways. And so, you know, with Carl, he's clearly not making a lot of money. We also see him kind of his job is kind of to be kind of like a prop, you know, and one of the things that the fashion industry does is that it, it, it expects you to work for free because you're getting paid in exposure. And we know that exposure doesn't pay the bills. I cannot trade exposure to pay my rent. And, you know, working as a fashion stylist, that's something that I experienced a lot where I'll do an ed editorial shoot and you're not getting paid for it. So not, not only am I not making money, but I'm also losing money when I, when I take into account paying for my Ubers to and from the shoot, to and from polls and things like that. So um, I appreciated touching on all of those kind of sub themes at the start. One of the things that I will say about the part one that I wish was dis discussed kind of more in depth in the film is they kind of touched on like gender dynamics and gender equity. And it feels like that theme was never really tied up in the film. Like we see, we kind of revisit it towards the end when Yaya makes a comment about like a matriarchal society. But um, yeah, I just felt like that was one of the things that could have been more fully fleshed out in the film. Yeah, I agree. I, and also what you were saying about uh, that the gig economy essentially of being a model or an actor. Um, and I thought, I just think the actors, I think Yaya and Carl were so good at filling in that sort of internal world. I just want to give them props for that because there was so much going on, um, particularly in then in their following scene, which was one of my favorite scenes, I think, of the film was them at the dinner table having that discourse over the check, which seemingly was, it was interesting because, right, they kind of bring it up as if it's about gender politics, but then it sort of becomes this thing about um, power. And she ends up admitting, you know, I did manipulate you and I'm using that to my advantage, which, like you said, at the end, I agree with you. I don't think they that he followed that thread all the way. And it was one of the things I was sort of confused about what the message was mm -hmm. about a matriarchy and the whole film, it was one of the things I looked at when I when I rewatched was sort of a matriarchy just replacing a patriarchy. You know, what is that? <laughs> that doesn't lead us to any kind of freedom that I actually believe a true matriarchy could sort of or not archy, but it was more pessimistic than I think my initial first watch. Yeah, the like the the very end, the last like half of the third act, and we'll get into more of it later. But like, yeah, sort of that tyrannical turn that Abigail has uh, in establishing this, you know, matriarchal society didn't feel fully fleshed out, didn't feel fully explored. So I agree that, you know, the, the, the gender dynamics and politics of this film didn't really make it all the way through as far as like, I thought like the, the class and wealth perspective was much, much stronger. Mm -hmm. um, I did really love that first dinner scene with Carl and Yaya because that is how couples fight, which is, I thought they really nailed that, which is just like, neither of them are really articulating what they want. They're just kind of hinting at grievances, 
so I thought it was effective in that way. And that like it is it's it's difficult to have these discussions because a lot of people don't actually know how to communicate what they actually want or what their thoughts are or like have a fully fleshed out idea in their head that they want to get out. Why are you so obsessed with money? That was my favorite line. Why are yeah, you so I obsessed with that. money? Mm-hmm. This is also the Internet's favorite conversation or maybe, you know, Twitter's favorite conversation about how the bill gets split. I don't know if you guys confronted this on your timelines at all. But it's the politics of, you know, splitting the bill in dating, who should pay the bill. And so and that we don't talk about money culturally and that that's, you know, just as a society, it's just something that we're expected to have literacy on. And most people, when they're coming into their own and have their own, you know, you just don't know how to talk about it. That's making me realize that the societal norm for bill paying is like, who will claim the bill? Who has the money? Who has the status? Who's able to afford it? Like that's like that's my experience. Like I, I don't know if you've ever been out with like your parents and you you're like I, I got it and you know at least for me like I got it, Dad. And my dad's like get the fuck away from that bill. Yeah, it's like a real status symbol to be able to pay the bill at the end of a big right, meal. Right. So it is a it was a perfect conflict to set this up we should put together something you and i frank of like all our favorite bill scenes because i'm thinking about friends has one of my favorite scenes in friends is like when they're trying to split the bill between the rich friends and the poor friends and always the assumption that you're going to split it it just it is it's just always the cringiest most amazing moment when it's time to split a bill so then we get to the yacht to the luxury yacht very below deck vibes although this is probably like a few socioeconomic rungs above below deck the way that they portray these wealthy people on this boat is so savage so brutal the demands that they're making the obliviousness I mean, one of my favorite moments on this boat is when Vera, who is the Russian's wife, forces everybody to go for a swim. Because this is such a perfect example of like oblivious selfishness that is disguised as altruism. Right. Like she thinks that she is, she's being nice. She's giving them this gift. Like, and little do we know that this is the, this is the choice that ends up dooming everybody on the boat. Because ultimately this leads to the the food not getting cooked correctly, everyone getting sick. And then, you know, all all hell breaks loose. Or both of your thoughts on the on part two on the boat here? Yeah, I mean, that scene was one of the most visually impactful, I think. And it, it just to your point, Frank, shows the complete detachment from reality. And it's also interesting because in that scene, it's the first time that we see people of color above deck, right? Because the, the back mm-hmm. of house employees are brought up as well. And so it's it's just... The, the little things that the super rich do to kind of quell their guilt, right, while actually doing nothing to change the material reality of other people, it's like, yes, they're going to go down the slide and go into the water. But turns out once they hit the water, nothing changes, right? She go, she gets to go back to, yeah. you know, sipping uh, her champagne and they go back to serving or go back to the boiler room or whatever it is. Now they're just wet while doing it, you know, so... <laughs> So yeah, that was that was a great scene. There's also a, a really brilliant moment. Austin doesn't just uh, draw the distinction between the guests and the crew. There's also the moment where he draws the distinction between the front of house uh, crew members and the back of house crew members. My favorite scene. And anyone who's ever worked in a restaurant knows that that disparity is extremely real. Back of house rarely, rarely ever makes as much money as the front of house, even though they're doing honestly, more labor and more like laborious forms of labor. I think we actually have a clip here from when uh, Paula, who is 
really wonderful f- performance from Vicky Berlin as the manager of the front of house crew is is psyching everybody up <laughs> because they're going to get those tips at the end of this. It's for the potential for a tip, not even that you're going to get it. It's always, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. If it's an illegal substance they want or a unicorn. <laughs> yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Yes. I know, I know what it is to work for service. I know all the challenges you're facing. But at these times, I ask of you to keep that chin up. Stay strong. And try to remind yourself, if everything goes well, at the end of the cruise, you might be getting a very and that's the smash cut to the boiler room and the back of house uh, staff members who are not going to see any of that gratuity. Their ceiling is shaking as the people above are screaming money. And I think it's important to point out as well that you see a divide along racial lines there, right? So the front of house are all yeah. kind of white, kind of conventionally attractive folks. And then when you see the camera pan down below deck, when you see the back of house employees, they're all people of color. Uh, presumably East Asian, right? And so, like you said, Frank, they they don't get to be in the running for this potential tip, which is also a nod to how capitalism kind of keeps this on this hamster wheel for the potential of, you know, making money or whatever it might be. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I've worked in hospitality. I've worked in nightlife for many years, actually, in an environment that's not dissimilar to that. I worked at a private members club. And so it's not just that the front of house employees have the potential to make more money. It's also, you know, our feelings of the rich aside, being able to network with them, being able to leverage those relationships can completely change your reality. And, you know, I didn't work at a place where there was like tech billionaires and stuff, but I worked at a place where there was people who were very, very successful in the arts and entertainment and people absolutely front of house were able to leverage those relationships to get jobs that completely change their lives. So sure. Well, and also the physical surrounding, I mean, the physical difference on a boat between where the bottom sits, the middle sits and the top sits, it makes me think about and this is, you know, following the heels of COVID, that boat that was the first boat to get COVID on it, and they trapped everyone on there and how they locked people, I mean, very like Titanic-esque too. You just think about these boat situations, but where you can visualize this hierarchy and they locked them inside of these tiny rooms. But of course, on the boat, just like in this movie, the people that you need to keep running it and have the skills to survive in that kind of situation are the people who are being locked without air. On a rewatch, the moment where Carl complains about the one crew member who has who had the audacity to take his shirt off on the deck. Dude just wanted to feel some some sea breeze and Carl complains and we all know this like he's going to get this guy fired. And in the moment it's it's brilliant on a rewatch because in the moment you're like, "Man, what a fucking asshole." Like this just this guy just lost this dude this li- his livelihood because he felt what emasculated for a moment that there was like another man in the vicinity of his girlfriend yeah, but Frank did you think he knew that the guy was going to get fired when he did that No and I, I don't think yeah. a lot of people know that they're going to get the person fired or like severely reprimanded when they complain like that but 
that's that's another testament to the obliviousness of this class, especially in service. If you're going to complain, I've, I've seen it all the time working in restaurants. You're going to complain about someone. You're, you're going to like probably cost them either shifts or their job or make their working environment much more difficult with their management. But I really appreciated that scene when he saw him getting kicked off. And we realized like he because some yes. people I like, think in the back of their head, but he really because he's I think that's a scene where you're like, oh, he is Carl's a lot closer to that guy kid getting kicked off the boat than he is to any of those wealthy people that he's sort of pretending to be around because we know he sure you know which is very much like i very much identified with that character in a lot of ways and the shock on his face like he almost looked like shocked because he sort of had a recognition of that in some ways well good yeah yeah <laughs> i know as i say but also he ends up effectively saving this guy's life. Right. True. <laughs> yeah. So like, at least I kind of took it as like, you know, this, this man, this worker having a true moment and, and allowing himself to exist like in a classless space where he was felt comfortable to take his shirt off. And he wasn't allowing himself to be like subjugated by these class hierarchies that ended up saving his life yeah. in the long run. So yeah. I was just going to say that in, you know, part one, Carl is giving very much solidarity power to the people. Just so to see that switch where there's this like class betrayal, it's kind of like, come on, Carl, we're rooting for you. But it is interesting, too, that, you know, the beginning of the movie starts with Carl shirtless modeling. And then I think the shirtless employee on the ship, there's, like oh, a, yeah. you know, through line there, a connection there. And there are just a bunch of beautiful touches on on this boat, especially with like the variety of of guests that we have. Loved the English arms dealers. Such a beautiful, just, oh, you know, it's just, we, we, it was a bit of a hard time for the business, but we pulled through and you're like, you're like, oh, good for them. And then obviously they're arms dealers. Did you guys catch the names, Winston and Clementine? So it's Winston Churchill and you know, his wife. I didn't catch that. Oh, no, I had not. See, this film has lots of subtlety. So many little eggs. Yeah, it's so good. And this is also where we get introduced to uh, Woody Harrelson's character. Woody Harrelson is the captain of this ship who is, uh, he's MIA for like the first half because he's, we're to assume, just hole up in his room, just boozing up. And when we finally meet him, he's basically like a a defeated marxist i i would describe his character as and it, it felt like a little bit of a metaphor for the state of leftist politics in the world right now the the one about marxist is kind of just like completely defeated in his room and is just a degenerate alcoholic but really loved his introduction and then his conversations with the russian oligarch it was a very fantastic uh juxtaposition and i think they even say it like who would have thought a like a Russian capitalist and an American communist. And then Harrelson says, I'm not a communist, I am a Marxist, which I thought was a nice touch because those distinctions often get blurred and purposely obscured by, you know, especially like right-wingers. Um, what did you both think of the the whole like communism versus capitalism debate that happened within this movie? Or I guess Marxist, more so Marxism versus capitalism. Did you feel like this was maybe too on the nose or did you, because I really appreciated it because I don't think we see discourse like this in popular films. So I'm sure for a lot of audience members, this was probably the first time they ever heard anyone actually speak about Karl Marx or Vladimir Lenin in like somewhat of an admirable way. Cause I mean, like in our education in the U S it's, it's all just like, those were bad guys. Mm -hmm. They did bad right. things. Good ideas, bad, you know, execution. I did find it to be on the nose, but I did also enjoy it. Like there was obviously humor in it as well. Um, but I think what I found interesting about that scene was the sort of 
the way that the captain was self-critical about his, you know, socialist politics. And to me, it brought to mind the conversation about, you know, champagne socialism and what it means to show up and be a good socialist. And I always, I think it's interesting because I always say that, like, I am not interested in, you know, I love indulgences. I want, you know, exciting experiences and anti-capitalist politics are not about, you know, universal deprivation where we're depriving ourselves of nice things. So one of the things he points to is that he feels like he's, you know, kind of a fraud in his politics because he has some level of abundance. He has some nice things. And the distinction is that I want to experience luxuries and I want luxuries, but I don't want that to be the product of the hoarding of, of resources and the hoarding of wealth. Like I don't want those things to be class signifiers. And so I think like ultimately we're all living under this current system of capitalism and it's impossible to detach ourselves from it. And we all exist somewhere along that spectrum of harm, you know, and it kind of ebbs and flows. It's not um, fixed. But I think, you know, the guilt that some of us still, and that's not to give cover for like, self-interested excess, but it is to say that there's no way to show up completely good and 100% pure. And so if you have some nice things or you navigate elite circles, that doesn't necessarily negate your leftist or anti-capitalist politics. Yeah, that's so everything you just said is spot on and really interesting. I think, yeah, I think that was sort of how I was feeling about this scene as well. I liked, I guess I liked that it was on the nose because it was sort of the soundtrack to, I mean, I think on first watch, you can't even catch half the things they're saying or understand what they're saying. It's like becomes this chaotic soundtrack to all of the puking and shitting that's happening on the <laughs> boat. And I love, I just personally love that kind of chaos where you, your mind has to just make the connections um, that it's going to make. But uh, it's interesting. The filmmaker's mother is a communist. Um, his brother oh. is, he said, I read somewhere Republican, liberal Republican. I don't know what that means. I don't think that exists. But it, that he talks about sort of being raised at a dinner table with these sort of debates happening. And so I think this was probably expressive of that. And I didn't feel that there was like a clear, I just, I liked that it was putting it out there and it was sort of for you to decide in this moment what you were going to pick up on, um, I, I and I think what he's really interested in is this sort of not making a not making sort of a moral decision about humans inside of a system, which again towards the end of the film I'm not sure where that goes. But here it's sort of you see these people struggling with big ideas. But yes, also also what it's like to realize like I'm I'm a sh he's like I'm a shit socialist because he's so drunk <laughs> by that point. But I agree with you. It was frustrating, too, to be like, God, you are a shit socialist, like, and you're just drinking out of some kind of guilt. Like, how does that make you any better than I think it was nicely mirrored? Like, how does that make you any better than these rich people who feel guilty and so make the people go in the hot tub to cure their guilt? Like, you're just getting super drunk and locking the door and not helping anyone on the ship. So you are a shit socialist. Like, he is shitty there. He's not doing shit for his boat, like get downstairs and help clean. Like, no, you're a shitty guy. Carl, I totally agree with you in that having anti-capitalist politics, having leftist politics is, as you said, existing within that conflict, you know, existing within the wanting of the things and the nice experiences, but also 
engaging in that self-crit that is necessary to practice your values as much as you can. I mean, that's something that I personally struggle with all the time, just like always in my head, just like, you're the worst. You're not doing mm -hmm. enough. You're not, like, you got to do more. You got to like do this and that. It's a real tug and pull. But I loved this debate because not only did he, not only did he frame it perfectly, but then he he takes it to the next degree, which is making it part of the ultimate nightmare for the ultra wealthy. Mm -hmm. As the storm is is blowing, as people are, as you said, Rivka, puking and shitting all over the boat, the toilets are overflowing. Everyone's got food poisoning. And then on top of that, they're listening to they're listening to a like a, a capitalist and a Marxist debate one another on a loudspeaker. <laughs> I was like, this probably couldn't be any worse of a nightmare for a super rich person. But it's also a nightmare for the staff. Like, I oh, think yeah. they're equally That's like true. not yeah. enjoying this fuck because it's a mockery of what's happening because neither of them are in the muck with the staff who has to clean it up as well. Did you two have anything else on the boat before we go to the island? One more just piece of cinema magic. I love the fly, but the fly exists. But I think we first meet the fly in the scene where Yaya and Carl are taking selfies and the shirt thing. There's just always this fly buzzing and then the fly continues onto the island. It's just... That to me was perfect. And that to me is very much about not that we are the fly as the viewer, but just sort of the fly is the most satirical moment for me. <laughs> just makes everything seem so ridiculous. This fly is just like, I'm going to keep going. I didn't even catch that the fly, you know, traveled with us to the island. I completely yeah. missed that. All right. So then we do get to the island. So this, so pirates destroy the ship. Uh, they kill poor Winston and Clementine. Boohoo. With their own hand grenade. With their own hand grenade. Just, wow, you love to see it. Poetic justice. Yeah. And so then we land on the island and there's what, like five, six survivors from the ship. Was there anyone you missed that you wish had made it to the island that didn't make it? Um, I wish more of the crew members made it. Yeah. Just because you hate to see like all of the workers of the ship, uh, you know, you're led to believe are either dead or have been, you know, kidnapped and are being held hostage for ransom. Um, so it was a bummer to see like mostly the guests who made it. And this is where everything uh, is completely turned on its head. The moment when Abigail takes power. This is my favorite part of the film. It was like a real life demonstration of the labor theory of value, perfectly depicted in media, for those that don't know, this is the it's it's not a Marxist theory. It's it's an old economic theory, but Marx used it in his critique of capitalism that all value is created by the workers, which is then exploited by the capitalist class. So here, Abigail shows that since she is the only one who knows how to perform the necessary labor for their survival, she is in fact the one who has the power on the islands. And I have a clip right here when this turn happens. Why do you get so much food? Why? I caught the fish. Yes, I made the fire. And? I cooked. I did all the work. And everybody got something. Mm. No. No, we all, we all worked. What did you do? We gathered all the wood for the fire. <laughs> I moved the log. Yeah, this big log, it was over there and it, we moved it over here. Not enough. No, maybe not enough, but we need to work together. They don't know how to do that. Exactly. Perfect. So good. I think it was one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, for sure. 
because like you spoke to it, it, it's so perfectly, it's so illustrative of how capitalism exists. It's the system is set up such that the exploitation is a core feature because devaluing and under, you know, paying labor allows for the extraction of these gargantuan profits, right? And so Paula is appalled that Abigail would keep that because she's just so used to that system. So it was, I think that was beautifully done. I, yes. And, and Paula being on the island is so important because the first thing she does when they get there is start ordering Abigail around to bring the water out and bring the snacks out because this class hierarchy is so conditioned mm -hmm. into her, into all of them that like, even without the trappings of the boat and them actually like being on the, they're not even on the clock right now. And she's still of the belief that this woman works for me and, you know, by extension for all of us and these rich people, they still have the status, even though all of the actual material realities of their status have been completely stripped away. I thought that was like such a perfect, like, contrast showing and she has the opportunity to align with abigail and i'm like oh maybe she'll just align with abigail and they'll have an alliance and some solidarity because she'll finally recognize like they are both workers of this company but she can't even see that which i would thought was so real and it's interesting because uh is it what's the crazy russian's name demetrius demetrius in that moment gets it totally like he's just if you click back to him he's like oh and he's almost taking this perverse joy in it like this is the part where on the rewatch the first time i didn't see it the rewatch it kind of disturbed me a little because i think he starts he sort of recognizes something in her that he relates to as a capitalist which is he sees like oh she's gonna take advantage of this opportunity um, which again, I'm very curious what would have happened if she wasn't the only person who ended up on that island with skill. And if there was actually a few of them, how that would have transformed the organization that follows. It's interesting that you point that out about Dimitri. And I didn't really clock that until you just said it, but it's almost like there, there was like a, like cynicism to his character that you see with a lot of. I don't know, a ton of rich people, but there there is a little bit of that where it's like, look, all I'm here to do is make fucking money and I'm just going to do whatever it takes and I'll be ruthless. I'll be a savage. I will not care about the other people that I am exploiting or extorting. And he his character has that throughout the film. So when that turn happens and he's like, oh, that's cool. She's she's using her power now. Like he's like, I, he's like, I'm someone who's just like regularly used to using and abusing people. So like, I get it. Game recognized game. Exactly. <laughs> well, and he also represents, right, a character that he didn't inherit his money. He has this real story that he worked for it, profiting off of the earth, literally, creating fertilizer and shit. So I think there's that sort of like bootstraps moment where he just really, I think he really, 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 truly bows down to the God of capitalism. And in that moment, she is in some way, I think, affirming that reality for him because i think he recognized that she's going to and this is where i'm i'm curious about the politics of the movie at this point where she replaces a leader role as another leader and what value does that ultimately serve yeah i mean the movie obviously is you know condemns capitalism but i think when we get to the end it kind of muddies the message a little bit or perhaps it you know, broadens the message where there's this dual message because it seems to soften the critique on capitalism and in, and then it broadens it to be this, you know, larger kind of, you know, look at the human condition and how 
power corrupts no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. That was where it kind of the message of the film bumped against me personally, uh, because it, it is it is that that power will corrupt everyone message, which, you know, there's there's definitely some truth in that. But I wasn't crazy about it being injected into this movie because I thought the critique was so sharp up until this point. And because also that the power will corrupt everyone line is a very commonly used line against socialist and communist projects historically. Like that is a very, like that is a Western like, oh yeah, well they tried, but like, you know, turns out power is going to corrupt no matter what. And it's a, it's a gross oversimplification and it doesn't take into account like the incredibly complicated historical context with any, any socialist or communist projects that has been tried around the world. So it took the bite out of the the capitalist critique a little bit for me. I mean, I don't know that he's necessarily making a film with a intentionally anti-capitalist critique. I mean, I think he's critical of capitalism, but I think his interest it really is about looking at people inside of this system. And I and I wonder if that's why it sort of loses it in this third act, because I do think there would have to be an intentionality about what are the other options here? And he was really, I mean, he's talked about being really interested in seeing people not at their best, but at their worst and about sort of bad behavior. And I would be much, I think it's more challenging actually to try and imagine people at their best. And that's why most films don't do it because we're really scared of it. But like, what would have happened if, I mean, there was that other worker there as well he didn't have any skills. Like, I don't know. There were certain things there that I'm like, I don't know that <laughs> like that there couldn't have been better organizing and that she would just immediately be at a place of revenge because she was treated so shitty. So, I mean, that speaks to me on one end, which is why I'm frustrated because I really enjoyed that. I wanted to see her just slay and like make everyone pay. But that didn't serve her at the end either. And there was that the painful, well, let's talk about the ending. I'm curious your thoughts on like the very ending and not giving a, what you think happened and the choice not to give a distinct, clear ending. Yeah. I mean, so this is just, it just further speaks to my frustration with the ending of the film where presumably Abigail, you know, kills Yaya because she wants to, whether it's because she wants to keep Carl or, you know, whatever it might be, but it's like it, it, she's drunk on this power. Like when Yaya finds the resort, you see Abigail's expression, which you would assume would be washed with like relief. You know, they have an out, they can go back home, but she's disappointed because she knows that's the end of her little, her little power trip. Although I did like, I did really appreciate that the last line is Yaya saying, you could come work for me mm-hmm. because it was so demonstrative of, the fact that she just had not learned anything. You can be my assistant. Oh, you could be my assistant. That's right. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't sure. I mean, I I didn't know for sure if she killed her or not, which I liked. I I like that. But I know a lot of people from things I've read that irks an audience. So I I was down for that. I think that sort of like not making a decision on the end allows you to be like, what is this? And maybe watching it a third time, I would have a different perspective. I don't think it's so, you know, as obvious as I thought the first time what's being said oh i feel like she definitely kills her i feel like the the assistant line the assistant line being the last line for me is like oh well that's that's the thing that would drive a person to be oh i'm smashing your head with a rock like you still think after all of this you still think that the only utility that i have is to work for you 
and to work in a subjugated position. But I think that's what was so great about it. I think it allowed for you to have that experience as an audience, a reaction to that line without showing us her reaction, because there wasn't there was a choice not to show us what happens, you know, and I think that was great because you really let that line settle in versus actually seeing something go down. Sure. There, were, there was a moment where I was like, I don't think she did it. And maybe that's a testament to the actresses who played Abigail. What was her name? She was so brilliant. And I think she filled, yeah, she just filled that last moment with so much, so much racing nuance that I just felt like I really wasn't sure because she went through so many different emotions and possible outcomes in the span of, you know, that shot that maybe that was the journey that I was on. I, I just think that it, it's it's despite all of the critique that we have, it was still a really, really great commentary on power structures, whether or not it was specific to capitalism or not. I think of it, that it did do a really great job of, you know, with all the ma- metaphors and all of the, you know, connections. I think it was just very visually impactful in speaking to, you know, the corrupting nature of power. And entertaining. A super like a super fun watch, which is incredibly hard to nail that balance where you're going to load it with this much political messaging and themes, but still just like I laughed a ton watching this movie. I'm excited that we're seeing more uh, art like this, especially in film and television. There's definitely been like a resurgence in the last few years of film and television with really strong class politics. I mean, Parasite winning Best Picture. Squid Game. And I think we're only going to I think we're only going to continue to see more of this, or at least I hope in the future. Yeah, I conclude with still better than White Lotus. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Definitely better than White Lotus. (laughs) And mom, I hope you're listening. Yeah, sorry, Amy. All right, Carla, this is the point in the episode where we hand out the awards for the movie. So the first award is a point with a view. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. You know, this is going to be controversial, a little spicy, um, but an acknowledgement of the duality of the human condition, right? I'm going to say the best politics goes to Abigail because it was just on the island when we see that inversion of power, her kind of reclaiming power after being subjugated, you know, in, in, this, in a position of subjugation on the boat. And saying, no, I worked hard. I'm going to take what I am owed. I'm not going to give the larger share to the group just because I felt that was so powerful. So I'm going to give her best politics. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't know who I I think Abigail, for sure, with all the complexity, Abigail, Abigail wins all the awards for me. Yeah, this is an easy one on this one. All right. Next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. I mean, this probably has to go to Dimitri, the Russian oligarch, right? I mean, just what an absolutely ruthless person. I mean, one one moment we didn't even mention, but like was to me, I think the most devastating part of the movie is when he is when his dead's his dead wife's corpse oh, washes God. up onto yeah. the beach and he's embracing her and weeping while taking off her jewelry because priorities. that's you know? that you gotta have your priorities straight. So yeah. Dimitri, worst politics for sure. I don't know. I I really, really couldn't despise Winston and Clementine, but they they had what was coming to them. But there was just something particularly about it was such a like belief in our hand grenades, darling girl. Like it was just all these one of ours. (laughs) Just such a like just such a removal from. I mean, they're all despicable, but I'm going to I'm going to put their names out there for a for a nomination. 
I think I changed my vote and I go with Rivka. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to fight either of you on this. I think they're all, they're all pretty terrible. And the final award is a star is scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. I'm going to flip this one because uh, my answer would have been Abigail, but then they kind of do Abigail's movie. Like the whole third act is, it becomes Abigail's mm-hmm. film. So like, like that would have been, my answer would have been like, oh, I want one of, I want to see like one of the, the, the workers and they're like them taking pet, but like they did it. I'm being naive right now about how this all works, but is this going to be a contender for next for like the, I'm so out of award season shit, but like, is this going to be a contender? Is she going to be nominated? Yes, this will, this is part of the uh, 2023 uh, award season. Um, she was just nominated for Golden Globe for best supporting actress but there is chatter that she will most likely be nominated for an academy award um and you know what would love to see her win for this performance as she should yeah it was incredible all right so before we wrap up we like to discuss how we as artists and people strive to practice our anti-capitalist beliefs in our own lives with all the complexities and contradictions such as we just discussed so carla for you is there one thing or i know there are many things but one thing that you wanted to hone in on in your own life, practice you engage in, you want to share with us? Yeah. So first of all, I love this question, but um, I wanted to touch specifically on the fashion piece because, you know, I, I, my background is in fashion design. I'm still a freelance fashion stylist and want to speak to anyone who's either in fashion or interested in fashion, but there's this like tension because it's hard to reconcile sort of your leftist politics with being part of an industry that imparts so much harm. And there's a there's a quote from Bell Hooks. I'm not saying it verbatim, but she says something to the effect of, and she's speaking about design kind of more broadly, that design is inherent to the joys of life. But the issue with it is that it has been co-opted by capitalism and white supremacy. And that so perfectly sort of encapsulates the issue with fashion and specifically the fashion industry, right? And so I love fashion. You know, I love the creative, you know, the the creative outlet. I think it's interesting to fashion oneself, fashioning a look. I think that that's all really exciting. But obviously, you cannot disregard the ways that the that that the industry inflicts so much harm. And I think that it's worthwhile challenging ourselves to imagine what fashion might look like outside of the capitalist framework. And so that means without, you know, a rigid trend cycle, without a fashion calendar that has five to six seasons on it, without brands that are beholden to corporate shareholders and things like that. And so there are a bunch of really interesting fashion theorists and, and thinkers in the fashion space who bring us along on that journey to think about what fashion might look like outside of that outside of that present reality. And so one book that I wanted to recommend for anyone who's interested in that sort of thing Um, is a book called Stitched Up, the anti-capitalist fashion book. It's by a woman named Tansy Hoskins, and it delivers a scathing indictment on the fashion industry, similar to part one of this movie, but also um, is really, really interesting and powerful in allowing us to think about what fashion could look like without, you know, capitalism. Wow, that's awesome. 
that's amazing. I I mean I knew I knew that I I knew of the issues with the fashion industry, and I'm I'm glad to hear that there are uh, people working to try to imagine a different uh, way that this industry could exist. So thank you for sharing with that that with us. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for you bringing in this conversation about enjoyment of the things that we love of the things of luxuries of you know that luxury that also doesn't have to be co-opted and that it's something we can enjoy and reimagine and be creative with and practice because I know even for I know for myself that's always a struggle and I'm and I'm like oh it's a complexity but it's it's really not it's something that can be you can look to other people who are doing this thinking and thinking for yourself. And that's really exciting and important. So thank you for that. And really important in the context of this film, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so Carla, where can our audience find more about you, more about your work? I know that you're on TikTok. If you want to let us know where people can find you and your podcast. Yeah. So I have a TikTok account that's specifically focused on New York City politics and policy. That's at Carla X Marie, Carla with a C, Marie with two E's. Also on Instagram at Carla Marie X NYC. That's Marie with one E there. And then I also have a podcast called Sip in Politic that tackles sort of complex political topics from a leftist intersectional perspective. And that is Sip and Politic. Amazing. Uh, well, Carla, it was so great getting to meet you. And we really appreciate you joining us today. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you all so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok by searching Movies vs. Capitalism. If you have any ideas for new movie puns to rename our awards, you can email us at moviesvscapitalism at gmail.com. And again, if you'd like to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash MVC to become a paid supporter. For next week's movie, we will be watching Mike Nichols' 1980s classic, Working Girl, a film that deals with sexism and competition set in the world of Wall Street finance. It is a fantastic movie. I had never seen it, so highly recommend you check it out so you can watch along with us and enjoy the conversation for next week. Thank you all again. We'll talk to you later.